seated. Join me by turning to Ruth chapter 3. There's, we will not have it up on the PowerPoint this morning, but we will have, if you got one of these sheets that came in, you can turn there or turn to your Bible to Ruth chapter 3. It is a a privilege to be part of a church that has a close connection to the former pastors and good relationships with the past pastors that have shepherded this church. And we have, as you know, our pastor emeritus, Pastor Jack, uh, my mentor, and and, and such a blessing uh, to this body who founded this church. And then his son, Pastor Ken, is here today with Lynette and their kids, Brayden and Seth and Kate, and so it's good to have them, good to have you here. Just a, just a year or two ago, I was at another place, not in the pastorate, and I visited my home church that I had pastored for 11 years, and it was strange to come back, but it was pleasant to come back, and, and I'm glad that you're back, so welcome. Ruth chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. I'm going to read different parts of Ruth 3 as we go along to the different sections of the passage. But I want to begin by asking God to help us and lead us and work through this passage. So would you join me by praying, God, thank you for your help. I admit that I cannot do this apart from your grace. You, we can't sit here and be attentive like that we need to and glean what we need to from this passage apart from your help. So God, would you do that? Would you please come and help? Open our eyes and we may behold wonderful things out of your law. Unite our hearts to fear you. Would you satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love, that kindness and love that you showed to Ruth and Naomi. Would you satisfy us with that love as we ponder your gospel in the book of Ruth. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're looking at Ruth. What is Ruth? A book in the Old Testament, in the time in which the judges reigned or or led in a very chaotic time in the life of Israel, what does that have to do with Christmas? Well, there's a lot that has to do with Christmas between Ruth and Christmas. We find Bethlehem, a common denominator. We find a lady who is going to be used by God. Who is not had not had children yet? We have a man of great courage, and we have a redeemer. We've looked at the last two weeks of the book of Ruth, and now we come to a chapter of action. We have a cha- chapter of both dialogue and action. There's not a lot of theological interpretation or narrating that's going on and saying this was what was spiritually behind it. We have to look and we connect the dots as we read the whole Bible. And we see Ruth chapter 3. We're going to zero in on Ruth chapter 3 this morning, but I want to review a little bit where we've been. Why do we come to a book like Ruth and find Ruth in December to be something that becomes meat and drink to our souls? Where we find in our desperation, in our pain, in our hurt, God giving us life. Paul said it this way in Romans 15, For whatever was written 
in former days was written for our instruction. Listen, this is really good. It was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. These things were written down long ago so that through the encouragement of Scripture and enduring, we might have hope in God. God intends for Ruth to to give us hope in God this morning and this December. And we've seen over the last two years, not the last two years, the last two weeks, as we've been in Ruth, as we've looked at these two weeks, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, we see that God is sovereign over all things. He's in control of all the details of our lives. We, we have many verses that we could go to on that, whether it be many are the plans of the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it whatever way he wills. We know that for, all, for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to His purpose. We, saw, we see that. We see that when Naomi comes into a land of Moab with her husband because of famines in her, own, her homeland of Bethlehem. She shows up there. She goes there, and her husband dies. And then her sons marry pagan wives in Moab. And these sons die. Thank you. And... They get to a place where they go back, and she's, she is empty. She, is, she has nothing. And she says, don't even call me Naomi, which my name means pleasant. Don't even call me that anymore. Call me bitter. Because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. And I've asked you this, and are you in that place right now? Are you in that place, or have you been in that place where you have felt like, I feel like God has abandoned me. Or maybe God hasn't abandoned me, but He sure has left me a very, very bitter, bitter pill to take. And it hurts. You might be a teenager this morning, and you're in that situation. And you might be at a place where you look and your kids are having teenagers, and you're in that place. And we find Ruth so practical because it meets us where we are, and it's where so many people in this fallen world find themselves, almost everybody at some time in their life, where there is pain and suffering, and we see that God is sovereign. He is over-controlling all the little details of, of the life, of lives of His people. We find that in chapter 2, as luck would have it, and it's not luck, we find Ruth showing up at Boaz's field, who is a near kinsman, and it just so happens that Boaz comes out to that field of all the workers and of all the foreigners, or all of those that were gleaning on the sides before, he would actually notice her. And in noticing her, be impressed by her, and so much, and go to her, and talk to her, and bring her to his table, and now they have a relationship. So what's going to happen? Here we have, for those that are not familiar with Ruth, we have now Naomi who is in the land of Bethlehem, but she had lost her property. They had gone into poverty because of a famine in the land for whatever reason. They left. They come back. 
and they can't use that property anymore because it's probably sold or at least it's being controlled by those that have paid the debt. And and so she is in a she is in a predicament. She has no way of meeting her needs, and she lost her husband. She lost her sons, and she's there. All she has is this foreign foreign woman named Ruth who had it, wasn't able to have children at least 10 years of their marriage, and she's now with them, and Ruth said, I'm going to come and help you because I believe in your God, and I'm going to cling to your God. And, and, and we find in chapter 2 that what Ruth did was said, I'm going to put my lot in with God, and I am going to come under God, and under His wings I find refuge because it's better than protection and provision and care in my homeland in Moab because there, there isn't the true God. And I want your God, Ruth. And what a picture of saving grace in her life as she said, I'm going to abandon all for this God, the true God. What we find here is as we finish chapter 2, we have found that God was at work in the details, the mundane details of Ruth's life, and she just so happens to come to the right field where there's a relative. And in the Jewish laws of that time, a certain relative was called a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer. And this kinsman redeemer had a certain right. In fact, there was an obligation in Israel that a brother of an older brother, so if an older brother, if the oldest brother died, who was supposed to carry on the land. And, and land was to stay within a family, within a clan, within that God had proportioned. It was God's land, and he was giving, putting it on loan for his people, and they weren't supposed to sell it to some other family. But if they were in debt, it would, they had no other choice. It would go to somebody else. Every 50 years, in the year of Jubilee, that land would actually be returned because God wanted stability with his people, and he didn't want it to be moved around. But, 50 years is a long time. And God would allow for a close relative, preferably a younger brother, would marry the widow of his older brother and have children, and those children would carry on the name of that oldest brother and would carry on the land and carry on the name and carry on that from from just continuing on. That was God's plan, God's way. There There was no husband but there was a redeemer available, and his name was Boaz. Boaz could buy the land or actually pay the debt so that it could be restored to Naomi. But Naomi had a problem. She was too old to have children. And so for this to happen, Boaz would have to marry Ruth. And in marrying Ruth, he would actually sacrifice his own property because now he's spreading his wealth between the two. And... He would have, in marrying her, their first son, he would get Elimelech's land, which is Naomi's husband's, and he would have to carry on that name, and it wouldn't be until a second son would carry on Boaz's name. Okay, so that's the setting. We are at the end of chapter 2, and what we found was Ruth goes out, gleans in a field, Boaz notices, says, your reputation has gone before you. You have shown so much kindness, and you trusted in God. And in so doing... You have, you have shown something so amazing. And he says, why don't you stay in my field? I'm going to make sure people protect you. You won't be harmed if you come to my field. You'll get all the food that you need. Just keep coming back here. She goes back and tells her mother-in-law. And Naomi says, this is a good thing. God has watched over us. 
Now in chapter 3, the plot thickens, and now they're going to act. Now there's an action. And we find here, what what we've found so far is that God is sovereign over all things. That God is bringing small signs of His grace and kindness, but the best is yet to come. And and so far, and as we're going to see, the main point that we all need to hear is hope in God. Hope in God because He rescues and cares for all of those that flee to Him, that run to Him for help. It may not be in your timing, in your way, but God cares for those. We, we find the lesson that Robert Morgan writes in one of his books. He says, mature Christians pay special attention to the accidents, misfortunes, and coincidences that befall, befall them. For in reality, there are no such things. There are no such coincidences or accidents or misfortunes. Only the providential ordering of a God who watches over His prayerfully, prayerful, trusting children and whose unseen hand is guiding, guarding, arranging, and rearranging circumstances. That is the God of the Bible, and that is the God that we call on today. And so what we find here, though, is we find Ruth and Naomi trusting in God in the midst of hard circumstances and no husbands and no fa- no way of, of, of pot provision except for now this kindness of Boaz. And now they see an opportunity. And in faith, I think we'll see them acting. What we find in this, in this chapter, chapter 3, is what John Piper calls righteous or strategic righteousness. There's a strategic righteousness that Naomi goes, okay, I have a daughter-in-law. I want to see that she's taken care of. And so I am going to show counsel her to act in a way in order to get care, care for her. We're going to do it in faith, but we're going to act. We're not going to just sit by and wait. We're going to see God do work. If we're, going to, we're going to trust God, but we're going to act. And we find that in this chapter. So what I want us to see here, I'm going to take this section by section. Let's look at Ruth chapter 3, 1 through 5. And in this passage, we begin by seeing Naomi's scheme. It's a strange scheme. It's not a scheme that most of us would recommend towards for courtship or engagement, but it is. it works in this case. What we find here in Ruth chapter 3, verses 1, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter... Should I not seek rest for you or care for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz your relative, with whose young women you were? See, he's winnowing barley tonight in the threshing floor. Now wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go... And uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So why this scheme? We find, first of all, that Naomi is burdened that Ruth is taken care of. She's saying, he's saying, I want my daughter-in-law to be taken care of, not just now and not day by day or week by week, just wondering, is this kindness going to continue? I want her to have a husband. Here's a near relative. I'm going to seek it. 
to lose it. Now, what is this scheme? She says, I want you to bathe, and I want you to perfume, put perfume on and dress up and go to the threshing floor where we're at the end of this harvest time, and I want you to lurk incognito, kind of stand off in the side, and watch Boaz go to bed and find out where he's going to lay down on the threshing floor. And when you go then and uncover his feet and lay down next to him. I'm not sure exactly why, in all cases, why this, why he did all this, why she was telling her to do this. It seems risky, to say the least. Maybe it was a sign that her mourning was done, her, her mourning for her husband in the past. Maybe it was Boaz is a relative and a redeemer, and she hasn't, he hasn't taken action so far. Maybe that's the case. Boaz hasn't proposed. Boaz is an irrelative, and Naomi's wondering. And I wonder why Boaz isn't acting. So now we're going to push the issue a little bit. And and we find this matchmaker, Naomi, saying, I want you to go, Ruth, and do this. This this could have been greatly misunderstood. Ruth could have gone and be misunderstood. This could have been the action of a prostitute. It wasn't. In no way, shape, or form do we have any reason to think that would be the case. But it is a risky plan, and there's a potential for great disaster. There's a potential disaster where Boaz looks and says, what are you doing? Get out of here. You're not allowed in this field anymore. Why did you presume on my, my kindness? That, that, she's risking that. Haven't you all felt that when you went? Maybe, guys, you felt that when you proposed. You proposed to, to your, your bride, and you asked her to marry you, and you felt that there might be a risk. She might say no. She might say, are you kidding me? Now, most people, by the time they're going to give them the ring, they know they're going to say yes. Ruth didn't know. Ruth did not know what was going to happen here. But she's obeying and following her mother-in-law. Okay, so let's look at verses 6 through 9. Here we find Ruth's action. In verses 6 through 9, so she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, and went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And at midnight the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet, and he said, Who are you? And she, I mean, I think it's meant for us to kind of chuckle. Because this is, I mean, when we read this story, we go, this is strange. Who are you? And she said, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, you need to recall that in chapter 2, when Boaz meets Ruth, he says, she said, why are you treating me kind? And Boaz says, because all that you've done in loving your mother has been reported to me, and it's famous. And how you did all of those things, and you fled under God's wings for refuge. Now what she is saying is, Boaz, be God's wings and cover me. What she is doing is she's proposing. She is saying, Boaz, would you 
spread your wings over and cover me in marriage. We have this language in, the, in another passage later on in the Bible. We have, we have this passage where God is having His people in Ezekiel 16.8, where it's a sign of marriage of God covering His wings over His own bride. And what we find here is we find Ruth proposing, Boaz being startled, Ruth acts in risky, courageous faith. She risks, but she knows she has a mother-in-law to take care of. There's a potential of a name being able to be carried on, a Limelech's line. God honored and blessed this. She was not going to sit by passively as she acted. So often in our lives, we are at a time where maybe we are at a painful crossroads. Or we're at a place where we feel like the next step just is not clear. Or it just doesn't seem to be happening. In this case, we find find Ruth and Naomi taking the next logical step by faith. They see this before them. They don't know what God's going to do, how God's going to do it. They see a Redeemer. It didn't seem like a coincidence that God would put Ruth in this field. And so now they're taking faith-filled action. Okay, this is an extremely irregular action in any culture, but especially in this traditional culture that Ruth is in. She's a woman proposing. She's a foreigner, and she's a poor servant. There's three ways that this, her actions that that night could have been interpreted beyond just marry me. She, they, Boaz could have thought that she would be seeking to be like a prostitute and accept her solicit, or that she was a prostitute and then he could reject it, or interpret her correctly. Realize he is a redeemer and act upon it. Remember what I said, a redeemer would be saying, I am going to pay the debt and marry you and carry on the name of actually, in this case, strangely enough, your father-in-law. Carry on his name and carry on that land and that name. So let's find out Boaz's response in verses 10 through 13. Verse 10, and he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men. This tells me that he's at least old. He's somewhat older. And, and, and he calls her a daughter. He says, You have made this kindness. You didn't go after those young men in Bethlehem, but you did the honorable thing, and you, you've come to me, and now my daughter, do not fear, I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman, which to me rules out any chance that he misinterpreted her advances. She was doing an honorable, right thing here. He didn't interpret it in any way that was inappropriate. And now it is true, I am a redeemer, he says. And then we get a complication. Yet there is a Redeemer nearer than I. There's a a kinsman closer to us, and according to our custom, that person has to have the chance to redeem the land and take care of this, this problem and be your Redeemer first. Remain tonight in the morning. If he will redeem you, this other one, good, let him do it. I wonder if he was like, good, but he didn't really mean good. But he had to say it. 
But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. And so as you see, Boaz responds with understanding and acceptance. He blesses and praises Ruth. He makes a promise to redeem Ruth. He presents this complication of a nearest kinsman, but he reassures her. He will act with honor. He will act with duty. He will act in righteousness and integrity. So here's how it ends. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but rose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it, be known, let it not be known that the women came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it out and measured out six measures of barley and put it, in, put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, this, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And she replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. And then we get left with one more chapter. We'll look at that chapter next week in a greater way. But I want you to look at the last verse. The last verse we find here, wait, my daughter. Until you learn how the matter turns out. We need to hear that sometimes. Wait until the matter turns out. Don't fret. Don't go crazy. Don't lose your head. Look to God until the matter turns out. Because God is at work. Behind a frowning providence, God hides a smiling face. God is at work. He is... He is there. He is active. He is invisible. His hand cannot be seen, but He is in there. He is changing the hearts of people. He's adjusting. He's moving people into certain properties. He's opening doors. He's doing something. And as we saw, God is doing something much bigger than what Naomi is scheming to do. Naomi is is making a good scheme, a good plan. And her plan was to say, I want to make sure Ruth is taken care of and is at rest. I want to make sure my daughter-in-law, who showed kindness and love and steadfast love to me, I want to make sure that she is taken care of, but God has bigger plans. God has so much bigger plans for Ruth and for Naomi and for Boaz. God has plans for what He is going to do, because whereas we're going to see next week, and we'll see in chapter 4, that God is raising up a son for Ruth. And that son for Ruth is a son for Naomi. And that son for Naomi, Boaz, and Ruth is a son for Israel. And that son for Israel is a son for the world. And that son for the world is a Redeemer. And that Redeemer is someone that does something far more than in the little land of Bethlehem, purchasing a debt for a widow and carrying on her husband's line. But he is, this son, is the great dragon slayer who is going to defeat the devil. This son is the one that came at Christmas. And he was going to be the one who would kill the dragon and get the girl. And that's his church. 
He was going to come and he's going to rescue and redeem his people from their sins. And in so taking care of their sins, he was going to bring joy to the world. He was going to take human beings and restore them to what God really intended them to be. True image bearers made in God's image so that they would love God with all their heart and it could never happen without a Redeemer. I say, where do I make that big leap from a, a field in Bethlehem a thousand years before what we know of Bethlehem to then and to now. Because what we are going to hear is that through this marriage that's going to take place, yes, I'm sorry, spoiler alert, in chapter 4, they get married and they have a son. And his, this son's name is Obed. And Obed has a son and his name later on, his name becomes Jesse. And Jesse has a bunch of sons, but his last son is David. And David becomes the king of Israel. And David makes a prophecy and is given a promise by God that you will have a reign in Israel. And your reign will go forever. And when the prophets look back and they said, wait a minute, that prophecy wasn't about David, about how he would reign forever, but a descendant of David would reign forever. And his throne would never end. And his government, and, and then Isaiah wrote and said, a government will be upon his shoulder, and his government will increase and increase world without end through the son that was born. And God is doing amazing things through just ordinary people and showing his glorious power and might through painful, bitter circumstances. And he does that a thousand years later in a little town named Bethlehem where a virgin woman who has probably received a lot of guile, a lot of slander, and a man who is very honorable named Joseph who received the same slander saying, how could you marry such, how did you get her pregnant before you were married? Or how would you marry somebody who is so immoral or impure of what she was not? And they go to Bethlehem and there's no room that guest house, and, and they go and they go to a barn, and in this dark circumstances, in a world where a pagan empire was controlling, and slavery was the name of the game, game in the Roman Empire, God was doing a work, and He was uniting a language so that God would bring a people together for His own name and spread the gospel to the ends of the world, and we Americans sit here because of those, and we are in call in the name of the Lord. Because God was doing a work through dark circumstances. And in those years following, a man named Herod is searching out for this baby, and he kills all of these babies in Bethlehem, but doesn't get Jesus. What's that all about? We don't know what that was all about, but we know that God was at work, and we know that God was sovereign, and we know that in the midst of clouds that were full of dark circumstances, they were ripe with the showers of God's blessing that would come and did God come. I want to close with this. What we must see is we need to see our need this Christmas, whether you are a Christian or not. And probably almost everyone sitting here will say, I'm a Christian. But do you embrace the Redeemer of your soul? Do you, do you embrace 
there is a kinsman redeemer that is greater than Boaz ever was for Ruth. You see, the requirement for a kinsman redeemer is that he had to be a kinsman, he had to be related. He had to, he, secondly, he had to have the ability to redeem. He had no money, no power, no, nothing like that. He couldn't be a good redeemer. He couldn't do anything. Third, he had to be willing. He had to be willing to do it. We're going to find in chapter 4 there was a kinsman redeemer not willing to do it. But Boaz was. And he had to do it. He didn't pay it all. He had to pay all of the debt to be the kinsman redeemer. We sit here this Christmas often not even realizing that we had and have we had a debt so great that it makes Naomi look real wealthy. And that debt is not a physical debt, it is a spiritual debt. And it is a debt that only a kinsman redeemer can pay. It is a debt that results in poverty for eternity. And our name could never be carried on other than in complete destruction and pain. And a kinsman redeemer was necessary. That kinsman redeemer must be kin. And so Jesus became our kin and came to earth. This redeemer must have had the ability, he must be powerful enough, he must have the wealth which says by Paul that he who is rich became poor on our behalf so that we through his poverty might be rich in the gospel. This kinsman redeemer must be willing, Jesus says, I am willing. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it on my own accord. And he joyfully obeyed the Father and went to the cross on our behalf. This kinsman had to do pay it all completely. And on that cross he said, it is finished. All of it is paid. This is for every one of us this morning. This is, this is the only source of Christmas joy. This is the only source for fighting against sin in our life. If you come this morning, and you come either with saying, I need God because I'm not saved, or you might say, I am saved, but I feel like I need God because I need saved from my trial right now because I feel so overwhelmed. Or you might say, I feel that trial may come from outward circumstances like health or a relationship that you didn't want to end or, or a relationship that is so sour that hurts. Or it might be through your own sinfulness. It might be that you have some type of thing, that some sin or secret that is just plaguing you and hurting you, and you come and you say, I need a Savior. I only know of one that can truly do it, and that's Jesus Christ, our kinsman redeemer. And a kinsman redeemer, much greater than Boaz, that can only do it, and, and he can only do it, and he always does for everyone who, just like Ruth, in courageous and humble faith, run to Him, say, cover me with your wings. Cover me. Would you spread your wings over me? Would you come, would you save me from my sins that I may have eternal life? Would you save me from my trial right now? Maybe you'll take away the sickness. Maybe you'll take away the pain right now. But if not, will you sustain me in it and cover me with your wings? Will you come and rescue me from my own sinfulness right now? Would you do that? Would you do that? I need, and God says, yes. 
He says it through Jesus, he says it does, all the time. Everyone, he turns none away that look to him by faith and turn away from their self and look fully to him. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And that everlasting life begins now, not someday. It happens now to those that believe in Him. And that believing is not a one-time thing, but it is a believing that produces life and continues on in our life. Hear the Gospel according to Luke. This is a great story, but it is much greater than the story. Because it points us to the story. It points us to Jesus. It points us to the King. It points us to a Son who is greater than seven sons. Let's pray. Father, we come and adore You, but not enough. We come and ask that You would come. We, we come to You asking You to feed us. We come not really with gifts. We're going to give offerings here in a minute, but really all our offerings are anything that You first gave to us. And You promised to provide for us and to take care of our needs. And so God, use the offering, but God, use it for our growth. God, would You help us this morning? I pray that there's someone in this room. There are others in this room that need, for the first time, to come to You and say, Save me. Cover me. Cover me and take away my sins. I trust in you. I pray they would do it this morning. They would from the heart believe in you and to salvation. And God, for those that are here that have done that, may we continue to do that. May we push, may we encourage others to do that. And I pray for those that are hurting. I pray those that are in sin and in bondage to sin, you would rescue them. For those that are needing saving from the pain of sorrow, the pain of trial, the pain of affliction. I pray that you would be a refuge to them and remind them that many are the afflictions of the righteous, but you deliver them out of them all. God, would you do that, Father? God, we we praise you for all your gifts to us. All the forms of gifts through family and through celebration and through traditions and through cookies and through meals and through all these things that we can enjoy. But I pray, God, we would enjoy you in enjoying all of those things. I pray that those gifts that we give, the book given away, would be because we want others to know this King. I pray that you would so work and you would so hear our song as we sing and we give now and conclude this service in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to actually do a little different. We're going to have the ushers come forward. We're going to take an offering while you're standing. We're going to sing. And then we're going to have some announcements after that. This morning, when you look at uh, the Nativity, and just recently watched the, uh, there is a movie called The Nativity Story. I watched it with my kids and family uh, a few days ago. And when you, when you look at that, and one of the things that that draws out in living color is the, the ordinary setting. You know, people wearing drab clothing and living in stone with the, like the heads of little two, you know, Roman oppressors. And then you look at the story of Ruth, and I know, you know, in our classes that we were teaching through the book of Ruth, that was one of the things that struck me was, here's just this ordinary woman who had gone through all this tragedy, 
Amen. But she just faithfully served, and God blessed her. I was also, I was reminded of this when uh, Carol Honore passed away, and I found out that she had, how long she had been ministering here in our church. Uh, Joey, how, how long had Carol been helping you in the, in the class? Fifteen years, that's the number that I was, that I was told. So here's this woman who had been laboring faithfully for 15 years, teaching my kids and your kids faithfully. And I'd like to do something this morning special. Joy Dibler has been ministering for more than 15 years in our church for many years. Joy, how long have you been a part of our church? Since 1991. Some of you can't even remember 1991. So she's been here ministering faithfully in our church and living. You remember when at the beginning of our missions month, we talked about living on mission. She's been living on mission. She's been on a mission, living a quiet, intentional life, a faithful life, fostering children, raising our own biological children, teaching our children. She has been a faithful example to us. And I'd like to read a few verses. In Proverbs 31, it says, there's many wonderful verses here about a woman like Joy. But then in verse 26, it says, She speaks with wisdom, and faithful instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children arise and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the reward she has earned, and let her works bring her praise at the city gate. So I'd like you to do something special with me right now. I'd like you to uh, to rise up with me. And uh, if you would. And we've got this, I've got this small, small token of give to, uh, to Carol. Or to me, too. It's a joy. But I thought that, that would be uh, appropriate for us to do. And if you want to, uh, as I was taught, you know, hug one or one. Thank you, Joy. We love you. I'll go more than warm. I'll have to remember that one. <laughs> I'm not sure if that. You guys can sit down. Uh, I'm not sure if that was my verse, but thank you, Ethan. I'll have to remember that one. Uh, this is a special time of year, and our, in our church, I think you'll all agree, has been blessed. The pastors who love the Lord. People love us anymore, so thank you for preaching the word. Unfortunately, our church is not the uh, richest church around, but uh, we are rich in love, as Ethan just demonstrated. And uh, we do appreciate the pastors for all the hard work and dedication. I'd like the, the pastors and their spouse to come up if you wouldn't mind, real quick, so we can recognize you. Christmas, and uh, 
never amazed me. It always amazes me. Is uh, you wait, please come on up also. Okay, well I'm not going forward until you come forward. Okay. The generosity of the church. I do appreciate that. The great love you have for our church, our members, and, and for our families. And for that reason, we have a, a small gift for you. Julie, uh, make the check count for this much, but don't tell Julie. So. why you thought you could get away with not coming up. And all, oh, also Charlie, you can come too. Sure, I'm glad there is. No, I didn't see any flashes out there. There's no pictures, right? No evidence. <laughs> uh, some of you may be thinking, "Oh, I missed that." Uh, don't worry. The, the season of giving is is always here. So, uh, for some of you might have missed it, and you still want to give. You can either give it to Office or give myself. Thank you very much. able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen.